The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. We are going to find ourselves in Psalms chapter number 90 in just a moment. Psalms chapter number 90. We're going to have an opportunity to work through uh, this psalm here in just a moment. Today we are starting a brand new mini-series that we are calling Breathing Room. It is on the subject of margin, how to find margin in our everyday lives. And so this is something we do every summer. We like to take a summer mini-series and kind of uh, just teach through it. Um, with so many people being on vacation and traveling here and there, rather than just going through a book of the Bible, uh, we just pick a topical study and we spend some time studying it a little bit. That way, if you only get one sermon, uh, it'll make sense to you. And so we're doing that here today. Now, before we get started, I want to say to our members and regular attenders, this evening we have an incredible opportunity uh, to be involved in our kind of prayer services. Now, Uh, Starting in one month, we're going to have our spiritual awakening conference that'll take place in the middle of August. It'll be four services in a row, and we're going to just spend some time seeking the Lord in prayer, uh, in the Word, and in fellowship. And I want to encourage you to make time in your schedules to be a part of that, uh, to be praying toward that. But in order to help get our church prepared for that, we're going to be doing these Sunday afternoon 2 o'clock prayer services. And I want to ask each and every one of you, go grab lunch, and then I want to ask you to come back, uh, not necessarily for preaching or teaching, but specifically uh, just to spend some time in prayer. Uh, Jesus said my house should be a house of prayer, and as I travel around to different churches and I get to talk with different pastors, prayer is one of the biggest things that gets talked about all the time, but churches rarely actually ever do. <laughs> and so we want to create space in our schedule for prayer. Can I, can I beg you, seriously, like if I could come down in front of each and every one of you, get on my knees and say, please, 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 come. I literally would do that because that's how important prayer is to my heart. I know it is to yours. And so let's spend some time this afternoon at 2 o'clock, 2 to 3. We're going to spend some time in prayer. We'll worship a little bit together and just put our hearts in a place where we can prepare ourselves for what God wants to do next month during our spiritual awakening conference. Well, in a moment, we're going to be in Psalms chapter number 90, but before we get there, how many of you um, remember the cars that your family used to drive when you were a kid? How many of you can picture them in your mind? Raise your hand, all right? And uh, let me ask another question. How many of you ever ever named your cars that you drove as a kid? Did any of you guys ever do that? You had names for your different cars? Um, As I think back on some of the cars that my family and I uh, drove growing up, each one of those vehicles uh, brings back different memories. And so I jumped on Google this week and I tried to find pictures that looked very similar to the cars we used to drive. And so I think they have a picture of a van that we got when I was about four or five years old. And for most of my young childhood, this was the vehicle that we used to drive around in. And uh, for those of you who don't know, um, I am the oldest of seven children, and that's why we had to have a vehicle like this. And we had this for many, many years. And when I think about this particular van, it was some type of Ford van or something in that blue color. Uh, When I think about it, as the years went by, it kind of broke down a little bit more and a little bit more and kind of different parts of it didn't quite work right. And uh, there was at one point in this vehicle's history 
where uh, it had one of these large sliding doors. How many of you have ever been in one of these vans that had one of these large sliding doors and you would slide it all the way open and then maybe slide it closed and it had one of these massive doors and uh, over the years, for whatever reason, the latch on the door stopped working and so you could close the door but it wouldn't really latch. It would just kind of, it could fling open and closed and so what my parents did, we had one of these uh, kind of stretchy bungee cords. How many of you know what I'm talking about with the little hooks on them? And so we'd have to wrap the little bungee cord with the hooks and things around the door in order to keep it closed and every once in a while it might come off and we'd have to put that thing back on and as the years went by eventually we were able to get another one but probably one of my favorite stories uh, with this vehicle and uh, my brother Daniel and I were talking about this last week and it kind of reminded me of it and uh, one day one of the tires on the vehicle had gone flat and so my dad had to put the donut tire on it, and we had to get the tire, uh, get the van fixed and things. And, and then he put the donut tire back into the vehicle. But when he put it back in the vehicle, uh, rather than bolting it down, you know how you have to kind of bolt it down in the back of a van or something, you just kind of set it in there. And that was with this vehicle. Uh, Red, do you remember this vehicle? You remember when we used to drive around in? Okay, so some of you have been around a long time. You're like, yes, we, we remember that. And uh, so one day, my mom and some of us brothers, we were driving down the road, and as you can imagine, you know, with a bunch of kids, my mom was constantly doing one of these deals. You know, she's driving, but she's turning back and having to, you know, sit down, be quiet, stop fighting. Any of you uh, uh, parents have to do that to your kids at all, all right? You're trying to drive, and, and I don't even know, like, it would really scare me, because, you know, for a second, you can do that, but when three, four, five seconds goes by, and you're like, mom, you gotta look at the road, you know, and she's yelling, all this kind of stuff, going back back and forth and trying to sit down, be quiet, as you could imagine with so many kids trying to do. And we're driving down east on Shaw. So those of you who are from this area, kind of picture this in your mind. We're heading east on Shaw, kind of just passing Blackstone, all right? So we've just passed Blackstone. We're driving down Shaw. We're getting toward the 41 freeway. And if those of you who know, there's the Ramada Inn here on the left side and uh, what used to be the Hofbrau there on the right side. So we're driving kind of toward that area, 41. There's the on-ramps and different things onto the the 41. We're driving along, and sure enough, my mom is telling us to sit down, be quiet. And when she looks back, the traffic had stopped, and she had to slam on the brakes really, really fast. And all of us went, oh, you know, forward. And we went back. And when she did this, the door that had been held down by the bungee slammed shut, and popped the bungee cord off, and flew open. And here we are, driving down the road, and this bit, it stopped. The door's open right there, and that's not the worst of it. When we stopped suddenly, that little donut tire had come loose and rolled down literally out of the van. And so we're sitting here, these kids, like, what in the world is going on? Like, what is mom going to do? Mom puts the van in park, and this is a memory I will never forget, jumps out of the vehicle and begins to chase the donut tire down Shaw. You know, I'm like, mom, what is going on? What are you thinking? Now, as a kid, I'm sitting here looking and I see this donut tire and it begins to roll toward the on-ramp of the 41. And I'm thinking to myself, envisioning, here is going to be this donut tire going down the 41 and my dear mother, you know, chasing after it, you know? And sure, thankfully, she was able to catch it before it got, you know, in any creative any traffic jams or anything, but I remember that vehicle. I remember that story, and every car we've had had different stories. I, I think there's another one here that we used to drive around, and uh, you guys got a, another one here. Uh, the next one right here. Yeah, there we go. Uh, this is the car that my parents let me drive. So when I started driving, this is the car that I would drive around in. I guess they thought it would be nice and safe. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I was a teenager, 
this was not what I had envisioned my first car looking like. The one I had envisioned was much cooler. It was much more styling. Uh, it was going to be able to go much faster than this one could. It, this was not my idea of a cool car. In fact, and it, it's actually cooler now looking at it than it was then. I don't know how that all works out. But uh, back in the day, this was like something I thought my grandma would be driving around in or something. And uh, my brother and I, we would deliver newspapers around Fresno. We had a lot of paper routes in the old Fig Garden area. And so we'd fill the back up with papers and wake up and we'd throw papers from this vehicle. I remember at one point we got another car. It was kind of a green Ford Taurus of sorts and and kind of what made that vehicle really cool. Guys, you got a picture of this one back here? All right. Yeah, what made this one kind of interesting is this is the first vehicle. It had one of these uh, uh, car phones in it. How many of you remember the first time you ever saw a phone built into a car, you know? I thought, man, that's, that, was pretty, that was pretty cool. We drove around in that one for years. I talked to my kids about this, and, and they'll, they'll ask me in our house, Dad, what's that little jack, you know, thing, that little outlet thing? What's, it doesn't look like you can plug a vacuum into it. What is that? I was like, that's a phone jack, you know? Back when I was a kid, we had to plug phones into a wall, you know, they just run around with them, put them in their pocket, you know, go do what they're going to do, and this was really cool because this car had a phone in it, and there was another car, and we didn't have this one for very long, but it was a Toyota Tercel, it was an old kind of, I don't know, 1988 or something like that, how many of you have ever seen these old Toyota Tercels, so as I said a moment ago, I was the uh, oldest of uh, uh, seven children, and there was a season, I think, when there was five of us kids, four or five of us kids, that we had to drive from the Madera Ranchos where we lived here to Fresno uh, in order to go to church. And for a season, that was the only vehicle we had. And uh, Red, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a time where all of us would get in and we'd climb out like clowns whenever we'd get home, you know, just like, I was like, where are all these people coming from? Now, there's only four seats in this vehicle, so my dad had to buy these old boat chairs. How many of you know what boat seats are? That you, you kind of buy them, and they flip open for boats, and he'd stick them back in the hatchback, and we'd have to sit back there, you know, three of us, as we're going to church or wherever we'd be going. And I'm telling you, you get seven people in a little four-seater Toyota Tercel, it was highly uncomfortable. There wasn't what we call a lot of breathing room, you know? It was like, you know, move over and stop hogging all the room, you know? And as we were driving down the roads, and I, I don't even know if we had seatbelts in the back there. I didn't think that my dad, Jimmy, rigged a rope or something, you know, to make this thing work. But we were, we were so crammed. There wasn't very much room. And I'll say this, um, we didn't have a lot of breathing room. And, and when you don't have breathing room in a car, that can get uncomfortable. But when you don't have breathing room in life, it can get pretty unbearable. Here's the theme that I want to start out with here today. Life is better when there is a good amount of margin. We're, we're, we're going to call breathing room. Life is better where there is breathing room. What, what is margin? Let's define it for a second. What is margin, all right? Margin is the space between our current pace, our schedule, everything we have to do, work. Margin is the space between our current pace, the, the pace of our financial obligations, the pace of our schedules. It's the space between our current pace and our limits. Let me ask you this question. Do you find that your current pace supersedes your limits? Like the obligations you have, the scheduling, all the appointments that you've got to get to, the work, all the chores, all the hobbies, all the commitments. Do you find yourself in a season of life where literally your current of pace supersedes your limits, your capacity to do? The, the distance between what your pace is 
and what the limit is, that is your margin. And when there is no space between the pace of your life and your limits, you have ran out of breathing room. And I want to say to you today that life really is better when there is breathing room. You see, my inclination, and maybe your inclination too, is to cram in as many things as possible. Yeah, I want to do that, and yes, let's go there, and yes, let's do this, and buy that, and get those things. And, and the inclination of humanity is to do more and to have more because we don't want to miss out on experiences. We don't want to miss out on not having something that somebody else has. And so the, the inclination of the human heart is to have more and, and to do more and all of these things. But we get to the point where we actually enjoy very little of what we do. And so we go to jobs that we don't enjoy and our life is going on full throttle and there's no joy and there's no peace and we're not experiencing love. We're not able to love. Why? Because we have ran out of breathing room in our lives and life is always better with breathing room. Now, I want to say this, an unhealthy pace. In our schedules, when we, are, when we are driving things to the max with work and with kids' hobbies and different activities and extracurricular activities, and we're, we're pushing ourselves to the max, an unhealthy pace always leads to an unhealthy place. And this is why I'm concerned. This is why I want to speak about this for a little, by, a little bit. You say, well, it's, it's not a, it, it won't hurt me, you know, I'm just trying to juggle things right now. Eventually it'll get better, but it never does. And I'm here to say that an unhealthy pace always leads to an unhealthy place, all right? And so today, we're going to talk about this thing of margin, of breathing room. And we're going to look at it from Psalm chapter number 90. Now, if you're like me, when you think about the Psalms, who do you think of as being the human author of Psalms? Talk to me for a moment. David. We tend to say, yeah, David wrote the Psalms. Now, here's what's interesting about Psalms chapter number 90. Psalms 90 was not written by King David, all right? He wrote many of the Psalms, most of the Psalms. Psalm chapter number 90 was written by another biblical character. Maybe some of you will be familiar with him. His name was Moses. Moses actually wrote Psalm chapter number 90, all right? And uh, this is one he, he wrote. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter number 34 tells us that, that uh, um, Moses lived to be about 120 years old. That's pretty old, even by today's standards, 120 years. And David had some incredible perspective on time. He had some incredible perspective on life. In fact, it's kind of random. You know, you ever read the Bible and you're like, man, why does God put that in there? Why, why is that being said? But in Deuteronomy chapter number 34, it tells that he lived to be 120. And then it says, oh, by the way, when he died, his eyesight was still really good. <laughs> kind of a random thing to just kind of throw in the Bible. How many of you wish your eyesight was still pretty good, you know? And that's what the Bible says. Moses, he lived to 120 and he had really good eyesight. Cool. All right, now we know. <laughs> Moses, 120, good eyesight. Interesting about Moses' life, his life is split up into three different categories. For the first 40 years of Moses' life, he lived as a prince in Egypt. A few months ago, we gave Moses' Genesis story and how that happened. We, we don't have time to get into the details today. But for all practical purposes, he grew up in Pharaoh or the king of Egypt's 
palace, and he lived like a king. He had everything he ever wanted, enjoyed all the best things in life. I mean, he had life made. 40 years, awesome. And then something happened. He got really angry, and Moses killed a man. Well, that was not a good thing, and he had to go into exile. He had to run for his life. He knew that if he stayed around, things were not going to be good, and so he ran, and he ran to the backside of the desert there in the Middle East and eventually became a shepherd. His career became leading sheep around the wilderness for year upon year, decade after decade, and you can just imagine after the birthday, 70, 72, 74, 75 years old, and he's still... He's still herding sheep around the backside of the desert. And you can almost imagine Moses' mindset being, well, I guess this is my life, right? 75 years old, last 35 years, 40 years, I've been tending sheep. And he probably just assumed that's what his life was going to be. And then we come to a, a passage in Exodus, and you might be familiar with it, where God comes to Moses in a burning bush and calls Moses to go and lead the children of Israel, the Jewish people, out of bondage, out of captivity, out of slavery. The Jewish people were made to be slaves in Egypt. And so God told Moses, hey, go to Egypt, talk to the king, talk to the Pharaoh, and tell him to let all the slaves go. This was no longer going to be an okay thing. Moses is a little intimidated, but he does it. He goes, long story short, he begins to be the leader of the Jewish nation. And for 40 years, Moses leads the children of Israel through the wilderness. The plan was that the Jewish people would go to what was called the promised land. But because of the Jewish nation, their lack of faith, they didn't believe God could do it. They didn't believe God was able. Because of their doubt and because of their faith, God said, fine. The first generation and all your lack of faith and all of your doubt, you guys get to just wander in the wilderness for the rest of your lives. And that was Moses' job, to lead these people, to be there, to be the one in charge of this 1.5 million people who wandered around the Middle Eastern desert, and he got to be in charge of them. He was their leader. And so he had a lot of experience, a lot of perspective on life. At the end of his life, finally, the the next generation of Israelites were going to get to go into the promised land. And as they were getting ready to go in, God said to Moses, hey, uh, you're not going. He was part of the previous generation that lacked faith. And God said to him, but hey, Moses, uh, you can go up on that hill over there and I'll let you look at it. I don't know, maybe that's why God gave him good eyesight so he could see it from the hill or something like that. And that was Moses' life. And so here in Psalm chapter number 90, he writes this expose on his perspective of time, on his perspective of life, and he has some incredible, incredible insights. In fact, in this passage, Moses shares an insight on time that is absolutely astounding. It provides some incredible context for what we should put into our lives as well as what we should take out of our lives. And so if you'll allow me today, I just want to kind of march through this chapter a little bit. We're going to explain it as we go. And at the end, I'm going to make a brief observation and application for us. So let's just begin reading here. Psalm chapter number 90. The Bible says this in verse number one. He says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. 
Moses says, God, I believe that you have always been and that you will always be. And those with life and peace find their joy in you. You have been our dwelling place. In you we move. In you we breathe. In you we find life is the way that the apostles would say it later. But that's what Moses is conveying here, that we have our life in God. Verse number two, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world. Before you made the mountains, Moses said. Before you made the earth, he says, before all that. Uh, by the way, side note, uh, this assumes then that Moses was a creationist, all right? I'll just kind of throw that out there. He, that's what he believed, all right? And then it says, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And so he says here, God, you made it all. You're from the beginning. You're from the end. See, you and I, me, we tend to view our lives in the context of our lives. That's all we can do. (laughs) Most of us don't remember what happened before we were born. Uh, Any of you actually remember when you were born? Thank God we don't remember that. Amen. All right. And so, man, we, we, our context for our lives is our life. We don't remember before. That's our context. But I want to say this, according to the passage here, the actual context of our lives is not our lives. According to God, the actual context of our lives is something called eternity. Now, whether you understand this or not, your life is bigger than just the time you will spend on this planet. The Bible teaches that you will spend somewhere forever, that your consciousness will exist even after you have passed away. The context of life is not this time here on earth. The context of our life is all of eternity. And so what we do is we tend to think, man, I've got to do everything and and right here because when I die it's all over and that might be what we think but according to the Bible our the context of our life is much bigger it is much greater than just these few years we will spend on planet earth and that's what Moses is saying here he's saying listen the context of our life is bigger than just our lives verse number three Moses says you turn man to destruction or to death and you say return ye children of men verse four he, he, he's talking about basically the fact that the, the keys of, of life and death are in the hands of God. That he controls life. He, he controls death. Notice verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday. Like when God perceives a thousand years, it was, it's like, oh, that was just yesterday. Like, think about what you did yesterday. Think of how fresh it feels in your mind's eye. That is the way God perceives a thousand years ago. Like, it's just a blink of an eye. It was just here, and it just, that is his perspective on eternity. He goes on to say, when it is past, he says, he says a thousand years is like a, a watch in the night. He's not saying it's like finding a Timex watch at nighttime in the grass, all right? It's a, what is a watch in the night? In ancient biblical times, when a military would go on the offensive or on the defensive, they would put a watch out. Somebody who would stay up during the night, they would watch out for the enemy attack in the middle of the night. And so what this passage is saying is, it's saying, hey, listen, a thousand years to God is like one of those watches in a night. Typically a watch, if, you're, if you were in the military, maybe some of you served in the military and you, had a, you were put on watch, typically it lasts three to four hours, 
And so what Moses is saying is to God, like a thousand years feels like three or four hours. It's just that quick. That's his perspective in light of all of eternity. He always has been. He always will be. Verse 5 says, Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. And, and here Moses is using imagery, beautiful imagery and metaphor to describe birth. He goes on in verse 6, in the morning, this grass, it, it flourisheth and, and groweth up. And so he's using the metaphor of grass to, to speak of the beauty of, of birth. Uh, I see Lori here, you just had her first grandbaby. That's so exciting. And I'm sure you've spent a lot of time just holding her and spending time with her. So it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And, and God uses the imagery like that's, it's like, it's, it's so beautiful. It's so fresh, new life. A baby's been born. Then he goes on to say, but in the evening it's cut down and where with it? Like, it's here and then it's not. It, it happens so fast. How many of you who are a little bit older would testify to the fact that life flies by? I mean, how many of you would be like, who are maybe in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, you're like, I, I feel like I was just a teenager. Like, what happened? So, so this week, my, my daughter, for the first time, went to a uh, youth group, uh, the Teen Crusade, and it just kind of hit me. I have a teenager, <laughs> and that's scary, because I look way too young <laughs> to have a teenager. <laughs> Man, I just, it seems like just the other day, we were holding her, changing her diapers, waking up in the middle of the night to feed her, you know, take care of, well, I should say it. It just feels like yesterday my wife was changing her, <laughs> you know, feeding her in the middle of the night, all those good things. But it flies by, doesn't it? Your life, it's fast. It's as a vapor, it appeareth for a little time, James says, and then it vanisheth away. Notice verse 10, he says, the days of our years are threescore years and ten. That's kind of a weird ancient way to put it, but... In biblical times, a score of years was 20 years. So when the Bible says a score, that, that was kind of ancient Egyptian language for, for 20. So 320 would be 60 plus 10. That's 70 years. So he says the days of our years are 70 years. He says that if you're strong, if by strength, they might be four score or 80 years. If you're really healthy, you're really vibrant, if you really got, you, you might make it to 80. And with technology and medicine, we might make it to 90 or 100. But basically the point is, it's going to yet, yet their strength, labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Moses is saying, hey, I'm 120 years old, and I feel like this thing has just gotten started. He's saying it has flown by so fast. And how many of you are here, and you find yourself 40s, 50s, and 60s, and you're like, man, my life has flown by so fast. I, I remember, man, I, when we first started having kids, I'm thinking, I still feel like a teenager. What am I doing having kids, you know? It just is this weird thing as your life just flies by. It moves along. And Moses is giving us a very unique perspective on time. He's giving us a unique perspective on life. As you contemplate the brevity of life, I'm going to remind you that it indirectly and eventually directly will impact what you do with your time. Verse 11 says, 
who knoweth the power of thine anger, so that word know or understand, who understands your power and who you are, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. It's kind of an interesting statement, but just to kind of summarize it, what he's saying is if you could understand who God really is, if you could understand him as he is, we would give him the respect, the reverence that is due his name. Now notice verse number 12, and I want you to catch this. This is where Moses brings it all together to this incredible, incredible wisdom. He says, so, because of all this, because life is brief. It's like a vapor. It's like grass that grows and then it's cut down. He says, so, because of this, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. You only get so many days. You only get so many hours. You only get so many minutes. And Moses in wisdom is trying to say, number them. Be cognizant of the fact that your days are limited. Why? He goes on to say, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. People who number their days, people who are cognitively aware of the fact that their life is at some point going to end, they tend to live with more wisdom. They tend to live more wisely. They tend to live more intentionally. They tend to live with more purpose in their lives. When we number our days, we tend to live a life with more purpose. My friends, if we do not number our days, we will fill our days with things that do not matter. If we start living and we begin to live like, ah, you know, we don't even think about the fact that this thing's going to end, that there will be a moment where you will no longer have children that you're having to raise, that there will come a moment where those kids and teens will move out of the house. There will come a day when your spouse might pass away. There may come a day when your life will end. When we don't live with that reality in mind, what happens is we tend to live foolishly with the moments that God has given us. And so Moses says, hey, Teach us to number our days. Why? We want to live wisely. We want to live intentionally. I want to say this. You might want to jot this down if you have a chance. Remembering that time is limited provides us with the wisdom to know how to spend our limited time. Remembering that our time is limited provides us with the wisdom to know how to spend our limited time. So because time is limited, I need to learn how to spend my limited time. For some of us in here, our time is more limited than somebody else in this room. And we we don't know what God has for each and every one of us, but all of us can mark this down for sure. Life as we know it here, this season of our life on planet Earth, will come to an end. And if we don't allow the reality of that fact to seep deep into our psyches, we will live foolishly and unintentionally with the the life, the gift that God has given us. The gift of life. Uh, Bronnie Ware, um, she worked at a hospice facility for people who had less than 12 weeks to live. 
Uh, I see Jerry here. Jerry works at Heinz Hospice here in Fresno where people with terminal diseases go to, to die. And, and Brawny uh, worked as a care physician at one of these facilities. And throughout the years, Brawny's had many, many opportunities to sit down with people in the last week or two of their lives and talk with them, try to help them, to try to minister to them, to, to do what she could to be a blessing in that season of their life. And she wrote a book, and as she would talk to these people, she'd ask a lot of questions. And, and one of the questions she asked was this. What was your greatest regret? In fact, the answers to these questions so pierced her soul that she put them together, collated them, and decided to share them with the world. I don't have time to give you the list, but here's what I'd like to do this morning to help us get a better perspective on life. I'd like to give you the top two of what she found in her decades of working with people in the last hours of her life, in the, of their life. Now, I'm going to give two for, I'm going to give number two first, and then later we'll, we'll talk about number one here uh, in just a moment. But regret number two, at first, you're going to be like, okay, I've, I've heard that before, but I think number one will be a little bit more um, uh, unique, all right? So here's regret number two. Most, most common things people said, number two. I wish I wouldn't have worked so much. I wish I wouldn't have worked so much. She writes in her book, this came from every male patient that she ever nursed. They regretted the fact that they missed so much of their children's youth and much of their partner's companionship. I wish... I wish I hadn't worked so much. Now, here's what's interesting about work. Why do we work? So we can get what? Money. Why do we want money? There are a lot of different reasons for different people. We want to buy things. We want to store it up to make us feel safe and secure. We want to have it so people will think that we're awesome. You see, money is a subjective thing that has different meanings for all of us. But what these people were saying at the very heart is all the things that money can provide. I don't know why I wasted so much time obsessed about it. I wish I wouldn't have given so much of my life just so I could live in a bigger house, just so I could drive a cooler car, just so I could wear nicer clothes, just so I could give my kids things I never have. Why are we so obsessed with giving our kids something that we didn't have? It, it worked out fine for us, but we got so many parents who are driving themselves ragged so they can give their kid the next entertainment system, the next biggest TV, the next cell phone, the next iPad. We did all right growing up without that stuff, and guess what? Maybe our kids would too. But we work ourselves ragged. We stress ourselves out. We are frustrated beyond all mind. Now we live in a generation where husbands and wives both work because why? We've got to pay the bills with all the commitments that we've made to all these different organizations, all these things. And so we stress ourselves out and we find that we are locked into a system where we have to work as much as we work. We don't have a choice. 
So whenever there's opportunity for over, overtime, we got to take it because we need the money, because we got to pay off this, and so we got to buy that, and we got to go on this awesome vacation. And I'm not saying anything negative about any of those things, but what I'm saying is, if you're going to if you're going to spend your entire life chasing those things, just make sure you actually want them. Because what these people were saying is, <laughs> we spent our whole life climbing the ca- corporate ladder, climbing, 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 r- running ragged only to find we didn't really even care about what we got when it was all said and done. Regret. Regret we worked so much. Uh, women also spoke of this to some degree. But since most of the ladies she interviewed were from an older generation, many of the female patients had not been the primary breadwinners. So for the generation that she interviewed, most of them were stay-at-home moms, and, and they, didn't, they didn't express this as much as the men did. But now, more and more, as we have more and more women entering the workforce, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, but I'm going to say this, that is going to become more and more and more. This, this regret is going to hit that as well. I wish... I wouldn't have spent so much time at work. First Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks to this. It says, study. Study to be quiet. First Timothy says, our desire should be to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. American culture is all about running here and doing this and climbing the corporate ladder and doing more here so we can buy more there and accumulating this so we can impress people there. And and it's about running and doing and getting and having and and so we run this rat race of life. Getting these things that once we have them, we don't even care. All the shoes that you have in your closet, all those clothes you have, remember how much you needed it when you were walking through the mall and now you haven't touched it in a year. (laughs) We live in a culture that, that wires our mind to think that we're supposed to live this way. And I'm saying we don't have to. It's our choice. Let me share with you regret number one. The number one regret that she saw as she would spend time with people in the final hours of their life. I wish... I would have had the courage, they said, to live my life, not the life others expected me to. Culture's going to tell you, well, you better do this so you can buy that. You better drive this type of car. You better wear those type of clothes. You better do this. You better save the. Culture has so much agenda for your life. So many things it tells you you need. So many things it tells you you've got to have. So many things you've got to do. And it's even worse now with Facebook and Instagram and all these different things. Man, we can see what this person's doing and what that person has. I don't have that. Oh, I don't get to go there. We got to work more so we can make a little bit more money so we can do this and go there and have these things and it just drives us insane and then because we're so frantically after it even when we go on the vacation we're not enjoying it and when we have the thing we don't even we can't even i mean it gives us like a a little quick fix and we're like oh that's cool but within a couple days that subsided and now we need something else we need to do something else we need to go someplace else it's just this it's just this crazy cycle in our current culture, our schedules are so frantic, stressful, and burnt out. And then we wonder why we don't have time for those things that God says will cultivate our soul. The things God says will bring real peace. 
The things that God declares will bring joy to our lives. God says, hey, I created you. I know what brings joy. I know what brings peace. But we have maxed our lives out to such degree that it crowds out the very things that enriches our lives the most deeply. And we don't have time for them. We literally don't have time for them. We can't if we wanted to. We have overcommitted. We have overspent. We have overscheduled. And what we're left with is a bunch of stress, feeling burnt out, feeling overwhelmed. We wonder why so many people have to take medications for this and medications for that. You know, it's just like, what in the world? This is, this is madness. And Moses says, you need to see things from God's perspective. You don't have to live the life everybody else thinks you're supposed to live. You don't, have to, you don't have to live in the house or have the type of cars. I mean, that's not wrong if you do, but, not, but at what expense? At what expense for your soul? So you can impress somebody you hardly even like? Why? You see, health brings a freedom very few realize until they've lost it. So... As we conclude, life is better when there's a good amount of breathing room. It's just better. When you just have time in the evenings just to enjoy your children. Not rushing off to this thing and going to this activity. And work. It's, just a, it's, it's healthy just to have space and margin. It's a good thing. It's in that space where you begin to experience God's joy. It's in that space you begin to experience God's peace. It's in the spaces of life that we experience the richest aspects of what it means to be human. So here's what I'd like to do real quick. Um, on your way in, how many of you guys grabbed one of these on your way in? Okay, we didn't do a bulletin on purpose this week because I wanted you to focus on this. Raise one of these up, all right? Many of you should have gotten one of these. Most of us maybe should have gotten one. And it, did you say we had a couple more, Ed? I'm going to have Ed come to the front real quick. He's going to run to the front, and then he's going to run his way back. If you didn't get one, I want you to get one of these because I'm going to give you some homework. Since we're in the middle of the summer and you kids are not in school, I'm going to give you guys some homework. How many of you guys are excited about that? And I want, you, I want to do this all together. We're not going to do a song at the end just to save some time, but I do want to do this for a moment, okay? And don't, right here, we got this? Yeah, we can, get, we can go there. Um, all right, we're all set. I think we, we might be out. Sorry, folks. We had a lot of folks here in the early service, and I think we uh, gave a lot of these away. Here's what I want you to do is your homework right now. I want you to think about this. We're going to put this up on the screen. Four exercises. Think about this. What is... What is currently not in your life, something you're not doing, that you know would enrich your soul, that would bring healing to your emotions and relationships, that would create space, something you could add to your life that would enrich it. I want you to write whatever it is the Holy Spirit brings to mind on the line. What do you need to add? Maybe it's not a cultural value. Maybe it's something your friends and your peers aren't telling you to do. And maybe it's not cool. And maybe it's not popular. Something you need to add. And you know deep down it's the very thing that would just cultivate your soul and your your spirit and your heart and, and allow life to be more enriching. What do you need to add? Number two. 
What is it that is in your life right now that needs to go away? Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's some technology. What in your life, what in your life needs to just go away? It's fun in the moment, but then it just brings you all types of just heartache and, oh, and you don't like it. What is it that you need to take away to create breathing room? Next. What is in your life right now, and it's a good thing, it's a really good thing, there's nothing wrong with it, it's not, even, it's not intrinsically even hurtful, but you just need to be doing less of it. Like, it's, you're kind of getting obsessed about it. It's just taking up a little too much time. It's like, you know, anytime somebody talks with you, it's all they're talking about, you know, all you're talking about. Just, it, it's not bad, it's just like, this is, you're getting obsessed. <laughs> and it just, we just need to tone it down a little bit. Every time we look at your Facebook page, it's the only thing you ever talk about. It's just, okay. <laughs> just need to tone it down. It's, it's taking up too much. All right. And then on the other one, what do you need to dial up? What is in your life right now? And you're doing it. You're doing it a little bit, and it's actually a good thing, but you really could be doing it a lot more to experience more out of it. You know, maybe it's something in your spiritual life that you know, man, it's so enriching, it's so helpful. I just need to be doing some more of this so I can find good breathing room. So what is it? What do you need to add? What do you need to subtract? What do you need to do less of? What do you need to do more of? So as we end, because my time is limited, I need to limit what I do with my time. Because my time is limited, I need to limit what I do with my time. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.